Expectations can be the stuff of uh, comedy or tragedy. Expectations, what are they, where are they, where have we laid them, what are they in, um, and how fair and how accurate are they. I think in particular of a, uh, a man and a woman as they are preparing to, to marry and the expectations that they bring into that endeavor. So, you know, oftentimes you have the man, uh, he is assuming, he is expecting that his uh, beloved's hair, looks, and uh, tastes in things will never change. On the other hand, you have the woman, and she's thinking about this guy, and she uh, is, contrary to the way he's coming at it, is actually expecting and just assuming, well, of course, his, uh, his manners, his opinions, and his priorities surely will change. And you can kind of see where this is going, this exchange of mislaid and, and mistaken expectations. Now, sometimes that turns out in, in half-hour sitcoms to be the stuff of comedy, but in real life it oftentimes more likely turns out to be the stuff of tragedy. Mislaid expectations. We can do the same with Jesus. We can do the same with the Christian faith, with the very things that he has said in his word. And as we were talking about earlier, as the service was just beginning, what he refers to as the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, our expectations can be mislaid and mistaken and therein setting us up for a terrible experience, a tragic experience perhaps even of disappointment and discouragement, maybe even disillusionment, and ultimately even rejection of the Christian faith. Because in the beginning, from the start, our expectations were off. This is a big deal. There are Grave dangers inherent in not having our expectations set aright with the plans and purposes of this king who has made these promises. What are ours? What are our expectations of this king and his kingdom? It's worth thinking about. If you have a Bible, I ask you to turn with me to Matthew 13. Matthew chapter 13, we are pressing on through this series in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 13, uh, Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, and John, those are the four Gospels that we have, they also are the first four books of the New Testament, if you're trying to, to find that, locate it there, uh, we are in, again in Matthew chapter 13, uh, we are picking up where we left off a few weeks ago uh, in verse 24, Matthew chapter 13 beginning in verse 24, uh, reading on to verse, through verse, excuse me, verse 43. So Matthew 13, starting in verse 24, reading on through verse 43. Hear now the word of God. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain... Then the weeds appeared also, and the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? 
But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. And he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Well, let's pray together. Oh Lord Jesus, would you give us ears? Ears with which to hear. Uh, beyond just physically, beyond just the sound waves, beyond just our eyes' ability to discern what is there on the page in front of us, but deeply so, would you help us to hear? We all come this morning with questions in our minds at varying levels of intensity. Um, some might be at the one end of the spectrum, just sort of curiosity at an intellectual level, but at others it is much more pressing. And we thank you for how your word does indeed address our deepest questions if, if we will but have ears to hear. And so again, we ask that you would help us. We are weaker than we want to believe. We are more in need of your help and mercy than we dare in envision. We compliment ourselves just a little bit too much. We think and see a little bit too much of ourselves and our abilities at this point. And so we are coming to you asking, you, the one who has revealed yourself and declared yourself to be the king, oh, would you show yourself as such in this moment? We ask in your name. Amen. Well, let me remind you as to where we are uh, in, in this series. It's fairly helpful at times to just sort of pause and take stock. Okay, where are we? Uh, a few weeks ago, like I said, we stopped at, at the prior parables uh, here in chapter 13 of Matthew. Matthew 13, in case you don't know, is the third of five major teaching sections in, in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, this teaching section is, contains a whole series of these parables, these metaphors where Jesus is making these comparisons of one thing to, and just everyday things to, 
life in the kingdom of heaven, as he describes. And so, just the last time we were together, we were looking at the parable of the soils, or the parable of the sower. And Jesus, in telling that, was answering a question. It was unspoken, but, but pressing nonetheless. How could it be? How could it be, Jesus, that you are the king? How could it be that the kingdom has come, and yet you have been received with little more than apathy and hostility? How can that be? How can you really be the king? How can the kingdom have come and you have been received in those ways? And so Jesus tells this story. This, this gives this image of this memorable, this metaphor here of, of a sower and soils and, and, and seed. But there were other questions pressing, other, other questions lurking that also needed to be addressed. And so he is doing just that here with these, this series of parables that we just read. You see, in the Old Testament, God was repeatedly revealing himself as, as a king, the king of the kings. Repeatedly, through the Old Testament, over the course of centuries, the prophets spoke of a, a Messiah who would come, a kingly figure, in fact. And so by the time the momentum is building and teaching is taking place, and you get to the first century, Jesus' time, and when he arrives on the scene there in, in Judea, uh, there is this expectation. It was slightly mislaid. It was slightly warped in terms of what the Old Testament had actually said, but it was, this was the expectation of a, of a mighty warrior who would come and restore the good fortunes of the nation of Israel bring them back at least up to and maybe surpassing the, the glory of David and Solomon's times, which of course therein meant driving out, driving out in a dramatic way the occupying Roman armies. That's the expectation of who and what this Messiah would, would be and do. Well, Jesus doesn't exactly live up to those expectations. But he still keeps speaking of a kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And he makes abundantly clear again and again that in fact it has arrived with his coming for in fact he is this king. But that raises a lot of questions because of these expectations and the conflict and the, just the disparity between what he's saying and what they're, they're thinking. But Jesus is speaking of a, of a kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, that is wider and deeper than was his contemporaries were, were thinking of. He was speaking of something that somehow, at the same time, is present and yet also future. It has settled in, and yet it is yet spreading. It is a kingdom in which his servants, his citizens, its subjects, are active participants now, even as they heartfeltfully await for its coming in in full, and they are to live in that reality in a daily basis. Oh, and it's the kingdom, by the way, that is best illustrated and explained by story. Parables. Which brings us to our text. This text, which then shows us that we may well be tempted to be discouraged and disappointed and disillusioned with the kingdom of God and with this king. But we actually have no need to be if, in fact, we have straight what the nature of that kingdom is and its coming and his timetable and what he has in mind. 
we might be tempted to become disillusioned. Therein, we need to have our expectations squared with His purposes. The coming of the kingdom of God is real. It is real. Though perhaps it has come, these three things that come out in these three parables, it's there in your outline. Though in fact it has come with a mixed presence and seeming insignificance amidst hidden activity, though those things be true, it is nonetheless come and it is real. And we need to lay hold of that and take it to heart. Let's look at these in turn, these parables, uh, that we could perhaps deal a little bit, or by God's grace, He could deal with us a little bit with our discouragement and disillusionment this morning. So, the mixed presence, that's the first thing. We might ask the question, it's a reasonable question, if the king has come, if the kingdom has come, why then is there evil? Why then are evildoers, unrighteous, rebellious individuals, men and women across this globe and throughout history, if all that is true, if the king has come and the kingdom has come, why then evil still? That's a reasonable question to ask. And Jesus is addressing it. He's not ducking or dodging it. He's taking it head on. Here in this parable, this parable we oftentimes refer to as the, the weeds or the weeds and the wheat. Let's look at it again, verses 24 to 30 just as the parable is told before it gets explained later. We pick it up, verse 24. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest than gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Okay, before we get into this, we need some background information, just some details, because we're not first century farmers in Judea. At least I don't think we are. So it might be helpful to get a little context here so we understand something of what Jesus' original hearers were hearing. This sowing of weeds in a field, it would actually, I'm not kidding, really could be referred to as an early form of bioterrorism when you think about it. Because what you're trying to do there is destroy your rival, destroy your enemy's crop when you're intentionally doing that kind of thing. Keep in mind... Wheat is an essential, critical commodity in the, in the ancient Near East in an agrarian culture. Wheat is an a, a essential, critical commodity. And likely what's being referred to here, this, this wheat is a, is a poisonous, a poisonous form of ryegrass known as darnel. And in its early stages, as it's growing, it looks just like wheat. It's very difficult to distinguish one from the other. And it's not until they both have grown into maturity that actually you can distinguish one from the other. So you see the problem here, that, that the farmer, that, that the master of this, this field, this farm, this plantation is facing, and why it is he is pressing upon his servants to be patient. To be patient, to wait, because these weeds and this wheat are tangled up right at the roots so be patient. You've got to hold on until harvest time. 
All right, so the significance of all that. What's the point? Where's, where's Jesus going with all of this? Well, let's skip down to verses 37 to 43 because he makes it quite plain what he means in this case by this particular parable. So he says, verse 37, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. All right. The backdrop to this, not just in terms of the agrarian uh, farming techniques and all of that sort of thing that we need to understand. is the Again, I alluded to this already, though, but the expectation was that with the coming of the Messiah, with the coming of the King, it would bring immediately, not in a delayed sort of sense, but immediately would also be the end of the age and the driving out and the doing away with all unrighteous and all unrighteousness, all evildoers and all evil, all sin and all sinners. That's the expectation that the Jewish people had, that the, with the coming of the king, this, there would be an immediacy to that. Well, they're not seeing that at all with, what, with the coming of Jesus, the supposed announced, self-proclaimed king and his kingdom. So you see the tension here. And why Jesus is having to, to adjust and reshape and recast their expectations. Because it's not the immediacy that they believe would be. Now, the, the field. Let's get the details. The field. What is the field? The field is, some have said through the years, is the church. And that's just wrong. I love you, but you're wrong. Because Jesus says very plainly in verse 38 that the field is the world. Okay, The field is much larger, it's greater than the church itself. So th that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about the, the, the world itself, much broader than just the church. The weeds, as Jesus said, are the sons of the evil one. That Jesus says, like this, this darnel, like um, the weeds themselves at the harvest time, are going to be separated out, gathered together, bundled up, and burned, which is some... Terrifying imagery, of course, but is a warning. It is a warning to all the rebellious and presumptuous before the living God. The field, the weeds, and finally the good seed, the sons of the kingdom, who can't, of course, take any credit for being born into the family, being the sons or inclusively daughters that they would be. But that's their parentage. They are the sons of the kingdom. These are also gathered, but in this case, gathered, brought into a, another place, into a barn. That's, of course, the metaphor, but in another, another sense, gathered before the king himself to be blessed, to be rewarded in the deepest, eternal, everlasting ways. Jesus' point in this parable is simple. For now, the world is mixed. So why evil? Why wrong? Why sin? Why is it a lot? Because for now, the world 
is mixed. It is mixed. The kingdom has come, but the harvest awaits. It has come already, but not yet in full, in a final cataclysmic, world-shaking, trans- oh, completely transforming sort of, of way. Therein, he is saying to his servants, to his followers, to the citizens of the kingdom, you need to now be patient. And you need to now expect resistance to the king and the kingdom because of this mixed presence. Now, we may want, what do we do with this? We may want, and of course we should if our hearts are right, we may want the kingdom to come in full now. But the reality is, again, that the weeds and the wheat are growing together in this stage of things. My friends, if, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a citizen of the kingdom, now, this is the context of all your service and growth. This is the context that Jesus is describing in which that will take place. Now, that may be more complicated than you want it, but that's the way it is. That's what he has said. That's the stage of the coming of the kingdom, the, the, the last days, as Paul says, in which we live now. So what does that mean in terms of implications? Well, just historically. That means it is not our place in any way to prematurely, presumptuously, try and remove weeds. Think of certain tragic aspects of the Crusades. Conversely, nor is it our place to prematurely, presumptuously, remove the wheat. Think of certain unfortunate aspects of the monastic movement. Ours is not to remove weeds or remove ourselves. Ours is to engage. Ours is to get involved. Ours is to be salt and light, going back to the Sermon on the Mount. Ours is to live and love and labor alongside our friends and our neighbors as citizens of this kingdom with the interests of our king in mind fully and faithfully until his return. That's what this means, at least that much, this mixed presence. There's more, but there's more Jesus tells us. Not only he's dealing with the issue, answering the question, why then evil? Why then sin? Why then unrighteousness? Why is all that flourishing? Okay, he addresses that, but he also addresses this. Why does it seem so small, this kingdom? So seemingly insignificant. Well, he addresses that as well. Verses 31 and 32, with this story of a, of a seed. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Okay, again, some background here. The size of this seed, this mustard seed. Now look, we, we know... Today, of course, in the 21st century West, that the mustard seed is not the smallest seed known to man. That's not the point. Jesus is not giving a botany lesson here. He's speaking of the smallest seed that was known to those people at that time. Okay, that's what he's addressing here. 
And so the point is not a botany lesson. The point is he's, he's using that to make a point, that the, this metaphor, comparison, between small beginnings and great endings. Some, he's making this comparison, driving home that the kingdom has come, small beginnings and great endings. It's surprising growth, this mustard seed, this itty-bitty little thing about the size of a sesame seed. That given the right conditions... Will grow. It, now, granted, technically, it's a bush, but it grows up to such size and stature that it's known as a tree. Sometimes reaching eight to twelve feet in height, with branches just spreading out far, far from the trunk itself. So that's the background. That's the image here. But what's the point? Why is Jesus saying this? What, what does this have to do with small beginnings and great endings? Well, let me read you this quote from George Ladd and. New Testament theologian, one of his uh, works, he said this, Rejected by religious leaders, welcomed by tax collectors and sinners, Jesus looked more like a deluded dreamer than the bearer of the kingdom of God. That's why this is worth thinking about. Because the kingdom came and comes with small beginnings. This movement, Jesus, even as he's speaking these words, can anything good come from Nazareth? He's a, a carpenter, a craftsman, an unschooled, untutored teacher, rabbinic figure of some kind, rejected by the religious authorities, and his, his followers are really nothing special. It's a small band. It's a small beginning. It's, it's seemingly insignificant, and so is their message. The movement and the message itself is so seems so small, so pathetic in the world's eyes. And yet, the testimony of history, and you just can't get away from this, it exploded. It took over the Roman Empire and beyond. Here we are in Clarksville, for goodness sake, talking about this. All these years later, And I should add also that centuries prior, the Old Testament prophets were in fact speaking of this kingdom coming, expanding, going forth, beginning with the nation of Israel, going forth through them to all nations, such that there was this imagery of birds lighting in the branches of this expanding tree. It's exactly what Jesus is speaking of here. So why so small? Why does it seem so small? Why, why so insignificant? Well, Jesus tells us, first the seed, then the tree. That's the way the kingdom comes, both in terms of, of the, the, um, the movement and the message itself. First the seed, the small seed, then the greater tree. It starts small, but grows, and grows so dramatically, it, it astounds those who have but eyes to see and ears to hear. Which then brings me to simply... This, this idea, this principle, this application, don't overlook the message. Don't overlook the seeming insignificance of this message. We're talking about here our security, our standing, our standing before the living God, being secured by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
Don't let the seeming insignificance of that message fool you. That message taken to heart is a paradigm shifter for your whole life. That message taken to heart will change your heart. That message taken to heart will transform your very life from the inside out. Your broken relationships, ultimately, your hope is the gospel. The guilt you feel this morning because of the stuff you did, ultimately, your hope is the gospel. The shame you bear, not because of what you did, but because of what was done to you, ultimately, your hope is the gospel. The bondage in which you live right now, because of, and I'm just going to list off some random choices here, because of the alcohol, the prescriptions, the porn, the food, the pleasure, fitness, whatever, ultimately, your freedom, your hope, is the gospel. Don't overlook the seeming insignificance of this message. Don't do that. Don't be fooled. Don't be deceived. Don't overlook it. That small seed grows. Grows. All right, well, that's two of the stories, two of the images, two of the metaphors. Jesus is saying, look, the, the kingdom has come, it is real. Despite what you see in terms of how evil seems to be flourishing in the world around you, despite how seemingly small and insignificant the kingdom and its impact is, and a third thing, despite how hidden it appears to be in terms of its working. Again, the kingdom has come, and it is real. Verse 33, very very short, uh, and maybe some, some profundity just in the fact that it's so short, what Jesus is saying here at this point. Verse 33, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Again, some background here. Um, this, this might be helpful. Leaven or or yeast. Now, it's an interesting image for Jesus to use at this point because most often the overwhelming predominant number of times that, that leaven or yeast is used in the Scriptures, it's a negative image, but not here. Here it's an essential image. Uh, it, it's absolutely essential, absolutely vital in the course of, of baking. It's a, it's a minuscule little amount, right? You bakers, you I'm not one, I'm just like on a limb here. But, but those of you who know anything about cooking and working with bread know that it doesn't take much but you, you take that little bit and you work it in. It, it, it's so little, and then it's worked in. It's, it's near, nearly, it, well, really it is. It's hidden. But it's still having its effects because you've worked it in. And Jesus is drawing a parallel here to that uh, between his kingdom and the leavening effect of the, the leaven, the yeast. having. And think about the, without it, where we are. Without that worked in, what do you le- you're left with a doughy rock. 
you really got little to work with at all. But with it, again, that dough, as it's mixed, as it's mixed in, change is taking place. Well, okay, why is this significant and why is this something that Jesus has got to press on? Because, again, the expectations of the time. And I would add ours in many ways as well. Our own impatience as well. As I look in my own heart and I wonder, where is the impact of the kingdom? You know, as we pray in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, right? The longing that Jesus tells us to pray for the coming of the kingdom. Well, what are we praying for? The influence and the impact of the kingdom of God in our own hearts? In the church? Because we so... It's just mixed there. And in the larger world as well. Right? Wherever we look, whether in the mirror, to the left, the right, wherever, oh, with the kingdom. So, uh, the significance, uh, I'm saying impatient. We're impatient. They were impatient. They're expecting... With the coming of the kingdom, this is the idea, this is the, the unfortunate expectations, mislaid expectations that they had, was that it would be a complete, utter transformation of the world order in an instant with the coming of the king. Boom! Then! Now! And Jesus is saying, not yet! Yes, but not yet. I've come, it's come, but not yet in full. Far more is yet to come. And so they're in this frustration there with uh, the, uh, the first century Jewish folks and their expectations. But Jesus is saying, though this may have hidden beginnings, like the leaven, like the yeast, it will have surely real change working itself in transformation taking place. The future has arrived in the present. The future has arrived in the present. Not all the way, but the future has arrived in the present. The kingdom has come. But again, somehow, and this is the tension, it, has come, it comes quietly. Like the leaven in, in, the, in, the, in the, the loaf. Sometimes even imperceptibly, but that doesn't change the fact that it has come and is coming. The kingdom does not come. Jesus makes this very plain. We looked at this a few weeks ago. He does not come as the mighty warrior. He comes as a farmer. He comes as a, as a sower. And so that demands then patience. It demands waiting because it comes not as an army, not as a storm, but coming still, but coming slowly and surely. And as that kingdom message is embraced, all is leavened even now in that present in which the future has invaded. Think with me. To the extent that we are hearing this, it has an impact, would have an impact, can have an impact culturally. Every aspect of society can be touched as we take this into our callings, whether that would be on post or the university or the hospital or in the business community or whatever the case may be, into politics, into economics, into art, into, into music, into medicine, into sports. Every arena as we wrestle with the implications of the king and the coming of his kingdom 
What we're doing, how we're doing it, why we're doing it, all of that is leavened and changed culturally, relationally. True repentance, honest confession, real forgiveness is not just commanded by Christ, but it's made possible by Christ. The leavening, culturally, relationally, personally, as we're changed slowly but surely inside out, as our very ideas who God is begins to change. Not so much the judge, but a father. Our idea about why we're here, our purpose, what this is about, oh, it's not my glory, it's His, slowly but surely, that begins to shift and change. My own identity. I'm not just this. In fact, more than all of that, I'm a son. I'm a daughter of the King of the Kings and the Lord of the Lords, and nothing can change that. That slowly begins to change, and it changes us. From the inside out, culturally, relationally, personally, all is leaven. Now, sometimes I'll grant you, sometimes those changes do come suddenly, but most often it is not. It is slow. And they're in deeper all the more, often. The point being, it's, it, 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 the impact, the effects of the kingdom may be hidden, like the leaven and the loaf, but it is nonetheless real. Nonetheless real. That's what Jesus is pressing in upon us here. The kingdom has come. Let me come back to where I began, just wrapping this up. The kingdom has come. We must understand how it has come, lest our expectations be skewed, and we set ourselves up for disappointment, discouragement, and disillusionment with our very faith and therein rejection of it. That's at stake here. That really is at stake here. We need to have our expectations set and formed by Jesus as the King's very purposes in the coming in the way that the Kingdom has come. And as as we do that, we can come to see that it's not okay. I see then the mixed presence, the seeming insignificance, the the uh, its hidden activity. I see that, I understand that. That enables me to be patient. It enables me to wait. It enables me to have a balanced perspective to the degree I'm hearing this and taking it to heart. Therein we do not run and grow weary. Therein we do not grow faint or again disillusioned. We know where this is all going. We know how this story is going to end. I haven't seen it yet. I've heard a bit about this new film in the theaters now, Dunkirk. Um, well received by critics and, and most viewers, from what I gather. Uh, many of you know the story of Dunkirk. That's the you just truncating it real quickly. That's the account of how the Allies were pushed out of France in May 1940. Some of you may also know how that was flipped just a few years later, followed up by Dunkirk, followed up by D-Day, when the Allies were not pushed out of France, but pushed right back in, in June 1944. And historians will tell you, I've used this analogy before, but it's too good not to come back to here this morning. Historians will tell you that at 
that moment, the outcome of the war was secured. Once the beachhead was established on Normandy in June of 44, the outcome of the war was determined and sure. VE Day was driven by D-Day. And once D-Day happened, VE Day was coming. Here's the thing. Friends, we live now between D-Day and VE Day. So however many battles and skirmishes may await us, and no doubt there are yet a few, till the Lord returns, VE Day is coming. That doesn't mean there aren't battles and skirmishes. That doesn't mean there's not a mixed presence with seeming insignificance and with hidden activity. But VE Day, the outcome is certain and secure. The kingdom has come partially. And one day is coming in full. May he find us faithful. And may we live now patiently with expectation of all of that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, no wonder you said at the end of this, he who has ears, let him hear. We think too much of what we think. Our senses deceive us. Apparent appearances de deceive us. We look around and see the evil. We look around and even within and see a little change. And it seems like what change we do see is in isolated pockets. And you bid us to be patient. To have our expectations realigned. Help us to hear, to see as you would have us to hear and to see wherever we look, whatever our circumstances may be. And Lord, we want to pray in particular here this morning. For those who are young in their faith and are just setting out, may they have their expectations set by what you are saying here, lest they be so rudely awakened. And those here this morning on the other end of that spectrum who found themselves at some point in their journey unprepared for this, and now because of that disillusioned, Oh, would you give them ears with which to hear as well. The humility with which to hear you and the hope that you intend for them to have. Your kingdom has come. May it come in full. And may we be found faithful as we wait. In your name we pray. Amen.